This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. This is Annie Grace, and today I'm really excited because this is like one of my first people I really met after putting my book into the world who is also kind of doing the same important work in the world. So welcome, Lee. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Annie. It's an honor. Yeah. And so Lee um, has, he's the CEO of a business called The Truth About Alcohol, the founder of it. And it's been very cool. We've been watching kind of Lee's journey. He's been watching mine. We've exchanged lots of things. Um, you are the first podcast I was ever on, Lee. No ever. way, was it? Yeah, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to dig the episode out and um, send it out on Instagram as a throw a throwback. I don't know, throwback Thursday or something. I'll make something up. But I have actually been thinking about doing that. So maybe you will be the first person. Yeah, it was my first podcast. I was super nervous. I listened to a bunch of your podcasts the night before. Um, one by uh, you interviewed Laura from Club Soda, and so mm-hmm. that was the first time I'd ever heard of Laura. And um, yeah, it was just it was really cool. So. Anyway, that was a long that. time ago. Yeah, it was. That's awesome. So um, what I'd love to do, though, is just to start with your story. So back right up and, and tell it, tell it okay. all. Um, the story. Where do we start? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a bit of pop fiction. So I'm going to jump in and out. So I'm going to take you back to me being 18 years of age. And I'm in Cyprus, Ayanapa which was a, a kind of a cool place to be at the time. And I went with a friend and his girlfriend. That tells you um, so much about the, the, uh, the depths I would go to to get a party in. And I went out on the second night that we was there in Cyprus, Annie, and I, had, uh, I was blind drunk. I had taken far too many drugs and I blacked out. And I woke up the next day in hospital um, completely terrified, in pain, like, and um, I had this little beauty there. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, wow. I can see so that. I had 20, 28 stitches in my arm. Uh, doctors said that I was lucky to be alive. Uh, I was millimeters away from severing my brachial artery. I'd been stabbed and beaten. And I was in a blackout state. So as you can imagine, when you've just been cut, you just arrived at Cyprus, you have no idea where you are. You're on the second day, you're blacked out. Someone's taking your arm off nearly. nearly. And somehow I managed to get to hospital. I have no idea how. Um, got stitched up and then went home the next day. And the reason I'm starting there, Annie, is that was when I was 18. And I didn't become someone who doesn't drink alcohol until 35. Wow. And I Dined out on that story for many, many years. I turned it into um, a very, very humorous time, um, almost like a, a lad's joke that I told everyone about how cool it was the time I got stabbed in Cyprus. <clears throat> and I want to start there because I think that that just goes to show the power of the system and how we turn um, life-threatening, uh, painful experiences into pleasurable experiences in order for the dissonance to keep at bay and so we can keep on drinking okay so i thought i'd stick that in there but i was born in 1975 um in manchester in the uk my mum uh, was 18 
And um, my father was from Hong Kong and he disappeared before I was born. So my mother actually gave birth to me on her own. Nobody would go in the labor room with her. So I was alone right from the off, um, uh, apart from my mum, obviously. And then my mum very quickly met another guy who became my father all my entire life. And uh, he, he was a uh, not very loving man. He didn't really know how to love, typical old school Northern English guy. So straight away, I don't have a really good father figures there, you know, in both sides. Um, about 10 years of age, we moved from Manchester to the South Wales Valleys. If anyone's ever heard of Tom Jones, the singer, um, Tom's from uh, South Wales. And that's where we moved. And the people of South Wales, uh, they hate the people from England, right? So straight away, you, you're, you're subjected to xenophobic um, slurs. Plus, I'm the only uh, Chinese person in the valley, um, kids being as they are. Um, you can imagine my upbringing there was very, very difficult. And I entered this paradox in my teenage years of really wanting to fit in and doing anything to fit in. And anybody listening to this story will be going like, boom, yeah, okay, I was exactly in that spot. You really desperately want to fit in. But at the same time for me, and I think this is one of the reasons I was able to stop drinking, is I also held on to this desire to be very different. You know, so it was this battle of I need to fit in, but I like the fact that I'm different because it's giving me this edge. I like the fact that everybody hates me. I kind of liked it back then, you know, and um, so I started drinking at 14 just so I could be the cool kid, you know, and I really hit it hard in the South Wales Valleys. It is just the norm. It is what you do. Um, you, there is no conscious thought given into the decision to drink alcohol. You just cannot wait to do that. And my biggest catalyst towards me actually drinking was my father uh, because he, that was the only way he remembered his father connecting with him. So it was my dad that actually lured me into the pub uh, very, very early. We, we were all drinking um, below the age you're allowed to. Uh, my son does the same now in that part of the world it hasn't changed and um so i started hitting it hard and then i got married at 21 had uh, my first child jude at 24 um i joined the railway incidentally straight out of school at 16 with no qualifications so i joined british rail uh, at that point and then we'll fast forward to 35 um, I am two positions below managing director in the railway company that I worked for called Deutsche Bahn, which is a freight logistics company. I had a very, very good job, a very well paid, had a lovely huge house in the valleys. I was in probably the top one percentile of the earners there. Um, I had um, a, a wife, I had a beautiful son, uh, and everything lit, right? But it was just a complete and utter lie. I, I was arguing all the time. I was uh, skipping hours on a Monday morning because I was hungover. I was popping in the pub every single night drinking. I had a terrible gambling addiction, which uh, came up. I, I was 30,000 pounds in debt, Annie. I, and to be honest with you, I had no way I was going to get out of it because uh, as a salaried position, as you well know, you, you can't earn overtime. Like, and I just thought I'm going to be doomed. Um, so around 35, I'm arguing all the time with my, my wife and I thought to myself, the alcohol is the key denominator. Every time I look at why we're arguing, it's always when we're drunk. So I decided that I would, um, I would stop drinking alcohol. I knew my wife never would. So I thought very deceitfully that if I did, then she would follow suit. So 
Um, ten years before this, I'd given up smoking, reading Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking Permanently. So I went into a bookstore, I always remember it, and um, I was with my boy, and he said, what's that book? And I said, that's the book that's going to change my life. And, and I knew before I'd even started reading it that I was done because I, I, I understood the philosophy um, and how it worked psychologically through the smoking. So I gave up drinking um, at zero, really important issues, folks. I had zero cravings and zero desires as soon as I um, uh, realized that I was going to take the vow to stop drinking. And um, my, my wife divorced me, so um, it didn't work. But it was, it was, you know, a really important time in my life, really harrowing time, but out of all this adversity comes a lot of change. I decided that I would quit drinking, uh, quit the railway. So I'd been there for 19 years to the day when I left. And that was a pivotal point, Annie, I think. I think a lot of people, they stop drinking alcohol and immediately they expect really great things to happen. But what generally happens is you get more uh, grief and more pain and more suffering because you're actually, you're alive all of a sudden. So you're actually doing more meaning and purpose stuff, which means your life is more complicated and more difficult. Uh, and you don't have alcohol to help you to deal with that. So a lot of people don't like that and they go back drinking alcohol. I kept my foot on the gas by actually making another life t- life-changing uh, move. And that was quitting my job. And I would actually put quitting my job up there um, as the hardest decision I've ever, ever had to make in my life. Um, I, I decided to do that so I could help people quit alcohol. I started blogging uh, Lee, uh, uk or something. And that website now just spams people and takes them to some gambling site or something. And the reason that is, is at the time I was playing a lot of poker and I decided that I would become a professional poker player to earn the money and the time freedom to create what eventually became the needy helper. Um, and is now today the truth about alcohol. I never did become a professional poker player, but I did travel the world trying and actually became one of the foremost expert poker writers in the world. And in the last two weeks, I've just come back from trips to Montenegro and Barcelona. And in July, we're going to go to Jeju in South Korea. And that, that's all um, interviewing poker players. Uh, and, and then, yeah, about we started the Needy Helper. We started the Alcohol Addiction Podcast. You've been a guest on that. And then about a year ago, Annie, I started to look around and thought to myself, why is Annie doing so well? Why is Holly <laughs> doing so well? Why is Laura doing so well? Why, why am I not really making an impression here? And there are lots of reasons. I think gender comes into it a lot, you know, um, uh, a lack of marketing and, and ability, branding, a book, um, I think like it's, would, would have been super important for me. But I did the Seth Godin marketing seminar and I realized that my voice was really getting lost. Uh, and I, I looked at where I was within yourself and Harley and, and Alcoholics Anonymous and Hello Sunday Morning and Sober Reasons. I was getting eaten alive. So I decided that what I would do is um, go back to my roots, go back to my philosophy. And I created the truth about alcohol and uh, found uh, my own niche there, which we can talk about when I shut the hell up. Um, created my niche there. And we're starting to get a little bit of cute uh, momentum going. Um, and that's where we are today, I guess. Oh, that's so awesome. There's so many things that you said that I want to like bring up. Um, first of all, is when you like just the, the dedication that you had, you said something about when you walked in the bookstore, you just knew like that book's going to change your, my life. You said that to your son, you had, you had a hundred percent uncertainty almost before you even read it because you kind of understood, you know, Alan Card's method and philosophy. 
and then you had zero cravings and zero desires. And I think that that um, something that I try to talk about so, so, so much that people really waffle with is, you know, I get so many emails from people who are like, I just don't understand. Like I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying. And I was like, you have to do something to take the try out of it. You have to do something to commit because you have so much noise when you're trying. It's so loud when you're trying, you know, everything in your mind is trying to convince you to have that drink because you're, you're addicted neurochemically. And so you have this intense craving and desire. But if you draw this like burn the boats, crystal clear gun to my head decision, all that noise goes away. All the craving goes away. All the desires go away. And like, it's such a hard concept for people to get, you know, that it's that decision. It's the no question, no matter what, that decision, that certainty, even if it's a certainty for today, you know, or seven days or 30 days or, you know, whatever it is, but it's that certainty that makes the cravings disappear. So it's, uh, yeah. we, we, we call it the vow at the truth about alcohol and it is the most difficult thing to explain to people do you do you ever find yourself sitting there annie thinking to yourself oh i bet i mean especially when you're writing the book and right at the beginning i know how to do this but i really don't know how to teach other people to do this and and, and the hardest part for me was the vow it was like that is the most important thing here is the vow and and i i did a podcast just called the vow i did a blog post called the vow and, and i send that to people and they and they feel the passion and they feel uh, the inspiration, but it, it's more than that. It's almost like we talk about the penny drops, right? You, you, it's an intuitive feeling. You just know, I am never going to drink again. You just know that it, it's going to happen. Um, one of the things that, that I've used to help people there, Annie, is, is understand a lot more about resistance, which I learned uh, first through Stephen Pressfield, the, the author of The War of Art, but then through uh, David Byrne's work at the Feeling Good, uh, his book, Feeling Good and the Feeling Good Institute. And it, it's, it's understanding that really and truly, so many people will come to you, will come to me on a Sunday morning, AA and stuff, and they'll say to themselves, I really want to give up drinking alcohol. I really want to do it. Now's the time. I know it. Now's the time. I'm taking a vow. I'm, that's it. I'm done with it. But really, deep down, they love it. They love it so much. And they're just telling you that they want to quit. They're telling themselves they want to quit, but they love it. And until they can stare that in the face and understand and accept that they love it, they love it like a, like a lover, like a husband, like a wife, only then can they let it go. And then when they can let it go, then they can take the vow. So, so for me, I spend an inordinate amount of time helping to melt people's resistance against alcohol or, or, and or learning myself how to upskill myself to be able to even do that. You know, it's, it's, it's so challenging. I, I screwed up this week on the forum. Some, some, some guy's on there, you know, he wants help. He's just had a drink. And I go in there, boom, with a big old male kind of let me fix your life kind of attitude. Really screwed it up completely. And once you do that, once you try to help somebody quit drinking in a way, it, it works against you <laughs> because you need to really take the voice of the resistance and you need to almost paradoxically agree with these people that, yeah, you know, I really, really love drinking alcohol. I love it. Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. So why do you want to change? And then at that moment, the penny drops, you know, but it is, 
I mean, it's a lot more into it than that, but uh, resistance for me is absolutely key, yeah. I think it's really true though, what you say is that um, when I, if somebody would have come up to me when I was drinking really heavily, when I was in that period of like, I was so certain that alcohol was the key, right? Like I, I believed that it was the key to all the things that made Annie, Annie, you know, made me good at my job, made me funny, made me successful at, um, you know, friendships, like all of these things. I was so certain that alcohol was it. So if you would have come to me and just told me, yeah, no, that's just BS. Like I would not have been able to even process that statement like it wouldn't have even been something that I was comfortable probably having a conversation about because but if you would have come to me agreeing and then questioning right like you just said so agreeing like yeah you know yeah you certainly do feel like alcohol makes you funnier so tell me specifically about a time when you know and and questioning and revealing that I think it's much more powerful because And if we can start to do that in our own mind, right? Because there is two things and that's a whole thing. It's this cognitive dissonance. So there's this thing of, I love it, but I hate it. Mm. Okay. So how do we bridge that gap? Because we get what we do normally, I think, is we jump and we're fully here. I love it. I'm just going to drink. This is the answer. I'm stressed. I need it so much tonight. It's this vacation. I can't imagine being on this vacation. I'm in the pro camp. Mm. And then we jump all the way to here. I'm so hungover. I can't believe my relationships are hurting. I can't believe I did that again. I meant to have two. I had eight, you know, and then we're here. And like, somehow we have to come into the middle, right? Like somehow we have to like take both sides and have rational kind of conversations to bring, to bring that together. Do you know, do you know what I think can help people as well? People sometimes when they want to, uh, stop drinking alcohol, they focus too much on the alcohol. And, and, and after what you just explained there, a lot of people could be focusing on the alcohol right now and thinking to themselves, yeah, that's kind of me when I'm drinking alcohol, or, or I don't have that experience, or I'm not experienced enough to deal with it, or, I can't handle it, I don't have the willpower. But if we expand it a little bit, what we're talking about here in terms of resistance, right? It happens every single day in your life. So a good example is uh, yesterday I was flying home from Barcelona, and, you know, while I was in Barcelona, I spent some time with this guy called Fabian, who actually stopped drinking during a conversation I had with him when I worked with him once at Wembley Stadium. And he, and he said to me, Lee, you are the reason I stopped drinking and stopped smoking weed. And he turned from a, you know, an overweight uh, weed smoker to the most cut muscular guy you've ever seen. So handsome, so cut. And I looked at him and I felt ashamed of my own body. I thought, if this kid can do this, why can't I do this? And I said to myself in that moment, I'm going to do that, right? I'm going to do it, Annie, yeah? I get to Gatwick Airport, literally like a couple of hours later, Liza's saying to me, let's go and have some healthy food. Now you've got this new healthy lifestyle. And I'm dipping off to get a vegetable pasty and some, um, some fries, right? And when I work through that process, the reason that I did that is because I have a resistance against being cut and being super healthy because it's going to take me a lot of work. And this is what David Burns will call process resistance, right? What I'm doing in that moment is I'm saying to myself or my subconscious is saying to me, no, eat the pasta and fries because if you eat the pasta and fries, Lee, you don't have to do the work. You don't have to run. You don't have to weigh yourself every day. You don't have to go to the gym every day. 
Now, that is exactly the same as drinking, right? When the resistance comes and says, go to the bar and have a drink, which is the same as my pasty, your subconscious is telling you, yeah, do that, because then you don't have to do Annie's program. You don't have to listen to a podcast. You don't have to go through the pain and suffering of listening to your own thoughts in your head. And that is process resistance. So I think, folks, if you just expand it a little bit and think to yourself, where else in life am I actually or have I actually done things that I didn't want to do, but I've overcome them? How did I overcome them? Alcohol is no different. It's just another thing, albeit um, what Google believes is one of the top five most addictive substances on the planet, which is, you know. Uh, obviously puts it a little bit up there. But, you know, me and Annie with people who have managed to uh, quit drinking without craving uh, and without having any desire, which really challenges the myth of the how addictive alcohol is. So if we can do it, then there's no reason why anybody else in the world can't do it because we're all flesh and blood, right? Yeah, totally. I think another way to think, you know, when you were talking about the resistance, because I, I love that book, the um, the War of Art. It's just mm, such a profound amazing. book. I haven't read David Boone yet, but I will made a note because I want to read that. But um, <clears throat> there's this kind of modality of these stages of change that I think is really relevant here. Like we, we go from stage one, unawareness. We don't even know there's a problem. Stage two, we're aware there's a problem. We're like, okay, like we start to question our drinking. Something might be up. Stage three is where we dig into the knowledge, right? And I think mm. so many people get stuck in stage three. Then you have all this head knowledge. And I, I, a lot of doctors, like medical doctors are in my programs and they just tell me, Annie, I should know better. I diagnosed this and like, I should know better. And so they have all this knowledge, but they don't yet have really the desire. And I think the desire really comes in stage four where you have the knowledge, so you have the cognitive aspect but then you get the emotional congruency where you're like okay now i have the knowledge but guess what this is affecting things in my life it's affecting my family my kids now i have this desire but then even the knowledge and desire gets you to a point where you can then take action hmm. but it then it's only in the repeated action of your own experiences of not drinking and living through those moments, dealing with the pain, dealing with the frustration, dealing with the times that are both good and bad, the vacation without drinking, that you really truly change your unconscious to where it becomes effortless. Because all the stages prior to that last one, um, where you're actually imprinting the change into your blueprint, you're, you're exerting effort, right? You're exerting effort to learn, you're exerting effort to even have the emotional knowledge, but still make the change. And then eventually, like I think where you and I sit today, like it's, there's, there's no effort involved in not drinking, you know, there no. doesn't even, it's not even conscious anymore at all. Like it's not even on my radar yeah, to be I, deterrent from my normal thing to have a drink. We, we had a conversation on, on my, uh, my community this week. There's a, a guy on their dog. He's, he's been, he hasn't, he hasn't been drinking for two years. Say he hasn't been drinking like every now and then until he joined Strive and we had a conversation about it. He was one of those, Annie, that someone would say to him, oh, try this new beer. And he would sip it and go, oh, yeah, because he felt like he was in control and he would never, you know, never have a full pint or anything like that. But he, but he said the other day, even after two years, he, he had a, a, a fra, uh, like a profound anxiety attack, like close to like, you know, breathing in a brown bag type of thing. And in that moment, he said, well, I really need a drink to help me because I know if I have a drink, it will it will chill me out. And I, and I said to him, oh, you've, 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 you've dipped back into a, a, an earlier stage here. Like that to me is like a real warning sign because, 
because, and it comes from my own intuition. It's like, I never think like that. So, and if I was thinking like that, wouldn't I then be thinking to myself, wow, like I really think there's some value in this. So I'm, I, at some point, if I'm in a real delicate situation, that value proposition could really push me over the edge. So I, I think it's um, really, really important to understand where you are in those changes. And, and very often you're on your own, aren't you? So I think, I think that communities like yourself and communities like Strive and Hello Sunday Morning, all these other places, that's where you can get the conversation going with other people who are in the same stage as you, or you can see someone who's uh, be- below you and then you can help them out. Or you can see some people who is like super ahead of you and then you can take inspiration. But very often, yeah, if you're just sat there reading, you know, stages of change and you're just on your own, it's like so difficult, you know, really is difficult. And it surprises me how long it takes from somebody to listen to my podcast, to pluck up the courage and turn up on stride. You're talking eight, 10, 12 months for some people. It, it, it's incredible how frightening it is for people to just open up and talk to people, even digitally when you can't see their face, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think what, what you said about the value proposition is really important. Like what value do you believe alcohol has? Because if you retain a belief that alcohol is valuable or important in your life, then in those moments of weakness, you know, whether it's the cruise that you've been waiting to take and you think, oh, well, alcohol is going to enhance this in some way, or it's the stress and the anxiety attack that you were just talking about. And so one of the things I think it's really important is trying to narrow down on that belief. Like where is the value that you think alcohol has or will bring to you and like really get clear on it. So it's conscious because in some cases, you know, people say stuff like, look, it, it will numb me out. It will take me and just obliterate me. And so that I don't even have to focus or I have to think. And like, that is true. So, you know, we have to be careful to say like, oh, none of it's true because that can trick yourself. Like you have to understand, okay, that's true, but at what cost, right? And so then you take this value and you really kind of deconstruct it a bit. The only only one value that someone can come to me and I will just be straight down the line, yeah, 100% that is true. And there is no other kind of like outcome is is someone wants to self-sabotage themselves so if someone comes to me and says i say to them what's the value uh with you drinking alcohol and they say i just want to hurt myself okay so in that moment it does the job however what are you doing here like why are you here telling me you hurt yourself why have you come to a place that helps people stop drinking that in itself tells me that you don't really want to hurt yourself um other than that annie I will get into the most incredible um, debates and arguments with people over the value proposition and the, you know, shall I fake it until I make it type of thing. To me, it's not, it's not a case of faking it. Right. So if someone turns around and says, well, if I, if I drink alcohol right now, it's going to quiet on all the voices in my head. Well, yeah, it is because it's going to knock you out. Right. So, but you now have a choice. You can think, that that short term value proposition is what you want, or you can choose to say, I don't want that. I want long term value proposition, which is 
I need to be comfortable with my feelings and my thoughts because they're never going to stop and I don't even create them. So the fact that I don't create them means I can't stop them, which means I have to learn to live with them because I cannot keep on drinking all the time. Now that to me is not faking it as you're making it. That's going back to what you said earlier on about the integral uh, role here that choice plays and turn around and saying, no, 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 no. Okay. I understand that if I feel alcohol has value, then I'm likely going to drink. And I can tell from yourself and people like Annie that if you really do nail it neurologically over time, that alcohol has no value, then there's no desire, which then elevates us way above Alcoholics Anonymous, for example. Like, I, I don't know about you, Annie, but my, my goal in life is to help people not have a desire to drink alcohol, not to quit alcohol or white knuckle for the rest of their life, you know? So that to me is a choice you make, but it's a choice that is very difficult to make and is... It, you need skilled people around you and experienced people. You need a mix of people who are screwing up worse than you. You need a mix of people who are doing really well. You know, I think the whole tribal thing, um, I think this is why sobriety forums work really well and, and, and grow very, very quickly uh, because don't, nobody wants to be alone, particularly when you're, when you're an addict, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, the other thing that you said that really struck me was we were talking about kind of emotions and you said, and then you're alive all of a sudden. And I feel like that is just so true. And it's something that people really struggle with is that feeling of being alive. I was talking to um, a woman yesterday and she's like, I just, I'm frustrated with everything. Like, I don't think I'm a very nice person anymore because I'm completely judgmental. I'm frustrated with our, what's happening in our environment. I'm frustrated with what's happening in our politics. I'm frustrated with all the injustices in the world. Like I just walk around with this huge sense of just frustration that things aren't better in the world. And um, she's like, and I just hate it. And I was like, I have a little tough love for you. Like, welcome to being alive. <laughs> There's, um, do you ever read uh, Seth Godin? Yeah. So, so sometimes I find a lot of help in the world of business when it comes to, so if I, I always have this, uh, this concept that if I run my life like a, a really successful business, then I can, I can crack the, these issues. I can just see the alcohol and smoking and, and gambling and pornography. They're just like weak links in my business that I need to kind of shore up. And um, Seth Godin has a new podcast. It's called Akimbo, right? And I was listening to episode two yesterday and it, it was it was fantastic what he was talking about i'm going to do a video on it myself but basically he was saying that th we live in a systematized world okay a systematized world it is designed to treat us like cattle like like zombies one of the first pieces i ever wrote when i had that blog lee davy was called the matrix you know mm. where i i i I had woken up and, and I was, and I felt like I was Neo who was all of a sudden realized that, holy cow, I've been living in the matrix for so long. And this is the really scrubby, dirty world, you know? And, and Seth talks about snowflakes. He says that people now, society looks at people who are vegans, for example, right? And they, they go into a restaurant and they're, they're questioning what is in their food. Um, they're questioning whether there's sugar in a product. They're questioning if there's gluten in bread. They're questioning whether or not their teachers should be teaching their children like this. And people look at these people and think to themselves, well, these are little snowflakes. These are little prima donnas. And it's because the system can't handle them. Now, I'm going to change them to us because if you're listening to this podcast, right, you are likely 
a little snowflake. Now, here the thing is, we're all snowflakes. We're all special. But some of us have woken up to that fact. And we're looking at the system and we're saying, I don't like it. I don't like the fact that everybody drinks. I don't like the fact that when I go to the cinema tomorrow to watch Solo, I'm either going to watch um, a load of adverts about sugar or I'm going to wa watch a load of adverts about alcohol. I don't like the fact that when I came back on my EasyJet flight from Barcelona, my 20-month-old daughter was staring at the seat in front of her and I had a picture of gin, right? I don't like this system. I don't like the fact that when I got on the first class train to come down to Wales, I don't pay for it, by the way, because I worked on the railway for 20 years, there was two lads working on the railway who stood and watched me push two suitcases, a baby and a pram on the train and didn't help me. And I turned around and said, are you going to help me? Now, that is deemed snowflakey. It's not. It's like we are waking up. We are alive. And we are looking around and we're saying to ourselves, I don't like the way the world is. Now, you have a choice. And this happens all the time. Uh, this naked mind, all the truth about alcohol. You can go back drinking and go back and join the tribe and everything will be hunky-dory. It will be just like you, you know. It will be warm and comfortable and cozy. Because let's not kid anybody. Pain can be warm and comfortable and cozy because you know what it feels like and you know what it's like, right? You can go do that. Go back and drink. Or you can say to yourself, no, do you know what? I am going to be different. I am going to say no to this system know to everything about it. I'm going to demand that I do things differently and I act and behave differently because I want something different out of my life. And alcohol doesn't fit in there. Now, if you make that decision, you will have an amazing, beautiful life, but it will be so much more difficult. But those challenges and that difficult period of time, that is what life is all about. You know what I mean? That is, that's, what, that's how you grow. End of rant. No, I love it. I love it. Such a good rant. Oh, that's awesome. All right, I have two more questions for you, Lee. Mm -hmm. First of all, all of this stuff, Strive, The Truth About Alcohol, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Okay, so we have a webinar on June 22nd. I'm not sure this will actually get out before. It will. Oh, it will. Okay, so. It will probably be out next week. So we, yeah. have a, we have a webinar on June 22nd on resistance. I, I, I really believe that resistance is the key. If we... If you can find people like Annie and myself, people who know how to melt the resistance, that is the starting point. That is the key thing. Um, I have, um, we used to call it a training course, right? But we don't call it a training course anymore. We call it a life-changing experience. The truth about alcohol, life-changing experience. Why? Because it changes lives, right? Seth Godin just said to me that 94% of people who take training courses, Annie, don't finish them. 94%, okay? I was amazed at that because 44% of people finish my life-changing experience. And I thought that was a really bad number. <laughs> I was like, how can I get this 44% up? The reason that 66% of people, 56% uh, of people, can't do my math, don't finish it is because of resistance. It's because they love, they don't want, they love alcohol too much and they can't face it or they can't face doing the work. So we're going to be working on that uh, on June 22nd. Lots of free giveaways, lots of fun, great webinar. Catch that out at uh, www.thetruthaboutalcohol.co.uk or you can email me at thetruthaboutalcohol at gmail.com. So that's, that's that. Um, you'll also find our community forum on there called Strive. That's our little movement that we have going on there. Uh, where we share the philosophy 
and 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 my philosophy is uh, very very similar to Annie's uh, with maybe a few tweaks, but very very similar to Annie's. Um, and everybody on my forum has read her book. Everybody on my forum thinks it's the best book that's out there. I think it's the best book out there. Uh, everything that she does is great as well. Um, and it just goes to show that you can be in one more than one place at a time. Like me and I think Doug, who I spoke about earlier on, he spends time with Belle, uh, tired of thinking about drinking. There are people on my site who spend time with Andy Ramage. Um, you called him Andy Ramage. I called it Andy Ramage. Uh, so you could be- oh, I got it wrong. First. You got it wrong. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> So we do have this life-changing experience there. It's over 80 videos, um, group coaching. Uh, the, the good thing about it is every single moderator you work with has been through the life-changing experience themselves. And when you go through it, you then have the opportunity to undergo training as well to also be a moderator. So it's kind of like it works itself around because there's no better way than cementing this knowledge neurologically than teaching somebody else the same thing. You can find all those things and the alcohol addiction podcast all at the truthforalcohol.co.uk. Um, that's where you'll find everything. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, my last question for you, if you were going to go back, you know, to Lee, who was in a marriage that was very boozy and, you know, afraid of quitting his job and all of these sorts of things. And you were going to tell him about what life is like now on the other side of quitting alcohol. What would you tell him? I would tell him, hmm, have you ever seen the Ted talk with Johan Hari? Mm -hmm. Where he, he asks people, what is the opposite of addiction? And he says that it's connection. Okay. So I, I, I actually think it's communication. So if I, if I was to go back to myself, I would say, Lee, start now to become a world-class communicator because for, for me personally and the experiences that I see in the strife movement, there are two things that go on. One is this programming, the matrix-like systematic programming that tells you that alcohol is normal, pleasurable, and that alcoholism is nothing but a byproduct of drinking too much of alcohol, okay? There's that that we need to change, right? But there's also all the reasons why we end up having such a terrible life that we need to rely on this poison. And for me, communication is at the heart of all those, or a lack of communication. So if I would have been a better communicator back then, would I have been able to navigate myself around conflicts without using alcohol? Uh, would I have been able to enjoy my job on the railway by communicating better with people who were making life difficult for me? Um, that is not to say that I would have changed anything because I wouldn't, because I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful um, that I'm not in that marriage anymore. I'm really grateful that I'm not in that job anymore. But, but to me right now, if you want one tip off me, folks, please, please, please spend as much time as you can becoming a world-class communicator. That's awesome. And then what about, what would you tell yourself about how life is for you personally? How life is for me personally. Ah, okay. I would tell him that it will get even busier, more manic, more complicated, more difficult, more challenging than it is now, but in a very good way, in a very spine tingling way, in a very 
wonderful way. And you will have so much more mental and physical strength to deal with those uh, added pressures that you will actually be, you won't be saying to yourself, please, someone help me. I'm drowning. You, you will be saying, give me more. Like for me now, life is so much better. And I think why that is, Annie, is like you, I wake up every, what that, why I always say, my name is Lee Davy. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I do not drink alcohol. And I spend every waking moment helping other people do the same, which means I'm spending every waking moment helping people change lives, change and save lives. Wow. You know, I was busy as a railway man making sure my trains ran on time. Now I'm helping people save lives. And um, I think that that waking up and realizing you're stuck in the system and that you can do something different is it's life. It is life changing. So um, that is how different I am today. I'm, I'm operating on a completely different energy plane, completely different. That's amazing. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much, Lee. It's been just such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on, Annie. And thanks for all the great work you do. Uh, the book, uh, the audio course. I haven't uh, looked at your training program or your community, but I imagine it's top notch. You're doing a fantastic job and your reach is outstanding. So well done. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye. This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word.